Hey, everybody. Welcome to Quizlet, the weekly show where we chat with upcoming Quizotron panelists. I'm your host, Rebecca Watson, and I'm very excited that today I get to chat with someone who has been on multiple Quizotrons and is possibly the most competitive person we've ever had on. She's the author of What's It Like in Space? Stories from Astronauts Who've Been There. She's the director of Science Hack Day. She's been on Sci-Fi and the Science Channel. She was named a champion of change in citizen science by the Obama administration. She's my friend and yours, Ariel Waldman. Hey, Ariel. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being on. I uh, I always love having you on Quizotron because you bring it. Like you're the <laughs> you're the only person I know who does research beforehand. <laughs> True, I am a total nerd. <laughs> And you get so angry when I don't ask any of the questions that you prepared for. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or when you ask like really obscure space ones and, and right. then I don't know them and oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the champion of change in citizen science thing that you got from Obama, did Donald Trump officially rescind that or <laughs> do you still get to keep it? I, I believe it was a um, an Obama program specific to him. So I believe when he left the White House, then that was the the conclusion of the Champion of Change uh, program. Uh, darn. Uh, so, regardless of who who ended up in the White House. Right. Okay. Uh, well, you know, at least you know you, you could get it again from Trump. Maybe. <laughs> no, thank you. Maybe maybe along with the Space Force, it'll, you oh, know. Oh, yeah. I don't even, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> okay, we can skip it. Uh, let's, let's talk about you and your interesting background, which I know we've talked about before, you and I, but never on the podcast. So you started out as an art school student and ended up working for NASA. So can you tell our audience how that happened. Yeah, it was a a not expected thing in my life. Uh, (laughs) Essentially, a few years ago, I was watching a documentary about NASA and how they were trying to figure out how to send people into space in the 1960s. And, you know, it was an interesting documentary. But the thing that I found really um, um, interesting about it was uh, that that they were interviewing all these uh, guys who used to work in mission control during that era. And they were talking about how they didn't know anything about spacecrafts or orbits or rocketry. Um, And so I was watching him thinking to myself, well, I don't know anything about space exploration. I want to work at NASA. So so I emailed someone at NASA that I had never met saying I was a huge fan of what they were doing. And if they ever needed (laughs) volunteer or something that I was around and the day I emailed them, they had uh, just created a, a new job description and they sent it back over to me and I applied for this job and I ended up getting a job at NASA essentially from emailing them. So that was nuts. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I love this in part because, uh, you know, you, you think of explorers in the 18th century and stuff, how, you know, there was so much to discover that any dummy could could stumble on, you know, like any anything. There's so much to to mm-hmm. still be discovered about the world. But these days we think of science as being done by scientists who have studied and trained for these very specific jobs. So what could we possibly have to offer? Uh, so it's amazing that in, you know, even in 
the 21st century that, yeah, an art student is able to contribute to NASA. What, what, yeah. was, the, what was the job description? Uh, so it was for a program at NASA called CoLab that wanted to facilitate um, commu- uh, collaboration between communities inside and outside of NASA. So they uh, specifically were looking for someone who had no experience with NASA to help bridge that gap. Um, so a lot of the things were like getting amateur astronomers to collaborate with astronomers at NASA or getting a lot of the tech startups to uh, have collaborations with NASA. Um, so uh it was a very unique um, and and uh, a little bit unusual position that they specifically wanted someone um, with no NASA experience um, so that they could make, you know, uh, good collaborations happen and, and have someone sort of be a community member um, on the other side. Yeah, that's incredible. How long did you work there? So I actually only ended up working at uh, CoLab for a very short period of time because the program shortly after ended up uh, running out of funding. And so that's when I, I built um, spacehack.org, a directory of ways for anyone to participate in space exploration, because I, um, you know, even though I was there for only a very short time, I became aware of the fact that there were actually, in fact, a lot of opportunities for people Um, to get involved in space exploration without formal science backgrounds. And I sort of made it my mission ever since to give people the same opportunities that were given to me, um, if not literally getting a job at NASA, then um, contributing to space exploration in meaningful ways and being valued for their existing skill sets and ways of looking at the world. Yeah. So tell us exactly like how does how does space hack work? So space hack, you know, space hack's interesting because I built space hack now 10 years ago. So it, yeah, yeah, it really is. So, so it really is, you know, a directory of just things that people can do from, you know, discovering uh, black holes to building the next generation of Mars rovers and things of that nature to get involved. Um, And I think, you know, it was built thinking about the context of building it 10 years ago, really there was a frustration that seemingly NASA had this monopoly on space exploration. Um, and uh, we had lost a lot of the stories of all the different types of people and, and diversity um, of, of people that had really contributed to space over time and, and present day. So spaceact.org was sort of trying to tap into the fact that um lots of different people from different backgrounds have contributed to the space program um, and uh, that there were still many opportunities for people to get involved. Um, And so now 10 years later, it's interesting because now we've got all of these commercial space companies that are really uh, coming, uh, coming up a lot more than they were 10 years ago. And uh, still though, we have the same problem where (laughs) it's kind of like, okay, well now it's, NASA and billionaires. Um, So I think we've sort of swung the pendulum from, you know, uh, no one really being represented in space, space being kind of a faceless endeavor to it being one person or or two people, you know, uh, who are doing space exploration. So um, I think, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, um, even though the monopoly has sort of been broken. I think, um, I think it's not as accessible or as inclusive as um, it should or could be. Yeah. But do you, do you ultimately think that it's a, it, it was a positive step for commercial space travel to, 
to explode the way it has? Or would it have been better for NASA to continue having that monopoly in order to get more citizen scientists involved? Oh, it's absolutely positive. You know, in yeah. NASA's 1958 Authorization Act, it's it's written into law that they are supposed to um, sort of support and, and nurture a commercial space industry. So, um, so it's never been um, a, com- a competitive thing between NASA and the commercial space industry. It's you know, it's always been a a thing that NASA is is meant to support and happily supports um, and. I think um, I think both sides are better off with each other. Um, I get kind of frustrated at people who think that like one is overtaking the other or one is less needed than the other. Um, they're both extremely needed, and it is really exciting, um, despite some of the um, failings of inclusiveness that some of the commercial space companies have. It's still a very exciting time technologically um, for all of this stuff to be going on. So, um, so the hope is that, uh, you know, it becomes more inclusive, uh, (laughs) through uh, a lot of advocacy or, um, or, you know, just getting enough people that they'll need to realize that, um, you can't just do it with a very narrow set of people anymore. Um, and to me, that's, what's really exciting about space exploration today is, um, as we become more ambitious, we require more people to accomplish things that used to only take um, a, a smaller amount of people. So, yeah. D- did uh, to get back to Space Hack? Did your creation of Space Hack lead you into Science Hack Day? Yeah, it did a little bit. Um, you know, so so getting this job at NASA and then building Space Hack and. Um, everything, you know, and, and being on this mission to uh, sort of give people more opportunities to contribute to space exploration um, using their existing skills and everything um, was important to me. But um, Science Hack Day was kind of the next logical step. I mean, when I'm looking back, it looks that way. Of course, yeah. like at the time, I was just like, let's do this fun other thing. <laughs> right. um, so, uh, but, you know, it, it makes sense now of just, you know, so Science Hack Day is a, a weekend event that gets designers, uh, technologists, scientists, and all different types of people together in the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. Um, so the mission of Science Hack Day is really just to get excited and make things with science. We don't give people challenges. We leave it open-ended. Um, people can work on multiple teams. Um, and it's uh, an, a, a grassroots thing. So there's an event that takes place in San Francisco, but there's also events that take place all over the world. It's now in 29 countries. And yeah, it really is that that next thing of just getting people you know, collaborating together and, and infusing more serendipity into science by playing around and um, people understanding the value of working with people outside of their fields. And I think until you actually do it, people are very skeptical uh, in the lead up. And I understand why, you know, like, you know, with scientists, especially, you know, they live in an ecosystem, a social ecosystem that tells them that time spent away from their direct line of work um, is time wasted and that, you know, um, they couldn't possibly talk to people outside of their discipline because it requires so much, you know, time and effort and education to um, know what they know. Um, And, and, and they're, you know, saturated in that sort of 
stuff. Um, and so a lot of times they'll be skeptical before coming to Science Hack Day, but every single one of them, on once they come and like come out the other side of the weekend, they all are like, oh, I get it now. Like I understand why, you know, learning how to prototype things with electronics is important, or I understand the importance of design, or now I know I can talk to people from completely different fields um, and uh, still get interesting uh feedback and collaborations uh, with them, you know, about my own work. So it's, it's, it's a really heartwarming event and it has so many good aspects to it. What's the coolest thing that's ever come out of Science Hack Day? I don't, there's so many <laughs> cool things. I mean, so Science Hack Day, gosh, we did the first one in 2010. So now it's like eight years later. Um, so there's been eight years. There's been about 100 countries. events. Yeah, right. yeah, almost 30 countries, 100 events. So there's been a lot of cool things. Um, you know, it was fun going to Madagascar and uh, they were working on building like sort of Internet of Things chicken coops, uh, which was just <laughs> like, I don't know, really fun to think about, like, you know, warming your chickens to the perfect degree ah, nice. so that they're happy you know yeah um stuff like that um That's you know cool. one hack that i i always tell a million times over but i just like like it was a, a person who created a um uh device that would detect when he needed to shave and it was using a microscope and it like measured you know the stubble on his face and everything but a, a particle physicist thought it was a really good way for detecting cosmic rays in a cloud chamber um and so uh, to this day, there is a multi-year student-led research program around detecting cosmic rays in a cloud chamber that's based off of the, you know, uh, tech and design that someone uh, had used to detect whether or not they needed to shave. And that's so there's just, yeah, I mean, there's just always like, you know, fun stuff like that. Um, What's particularly and- great about that example is that it it's the opposite of the way science is, you know, the way at least I think of science and practical applications have been in the past. You know, in the past, we have uh, scientists inventing lasers, for instance, and then down long down the line, we get DVD players out of it, basically. But in this case, it was a a practical sort of application that came first and then it moved into being an, an important scientific instrument. So I think that's yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I think, I think getting people to sort of like shake it out a bit with themselves and, and say that it's okay to play around with something if you don't know where it's going yeah. um, is important. And, you know, there's plenty of things that people make at science hack day that like, that was fun. Uh, no idea how that's ever going to be useful, right. but you know, but they're playing around with something that they've never given themselves the permission to play around with before, whether it's scientists playing with something new or someone uh, like myself, you know, playing around with science. Um, you know, I think, um, I think people kind of need that permissive environment. And I think by even having an experience like that once it can really fundamentally change people in, in the sense that they know that, that sort of thing is accessible to them, that they can, you know, uh, play around with electronics, that they can play around with particle physics data or, or what have you. Yeah. And you're still running Science Hack Day? 
Yes. So I'm uh, still global director of Science Hack Day. Um, and yeah, so uh, anyone who's interested in creating a Science Hack Day in their own city can uh, get the instructions for how to do so at sciencehackday.org. It's not a franchise. Uh, so so it's really open. Um, you know, uh, it's up for each city to sort of um, uh, do their own thing with it um, and, and just have a lot of fun. And they don't have to fly you in? No, if they want to fly me in, uh, I, I, you know, that is up to them. But, uh, but no, I am not a required uh, uh, part of of Science Hack Day. Gotcha. I'm just trying to help other people. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of you flying around, you just came back from a deep sea expedition. How was it? <laughs> Uh, tiring. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> we, uh, a note to the listeners, we're in a time machine right now uh, recording uh, just before uh, Ariel goes on her expedition. Uh, tell me about it. Like, how did you get how did you get this opportunity? And what is it? Yeah, it's actually a really incredible opportunity I stumbled across. So it was um, uh, so there's Ocean Exploration Trust, which is the nonprofit that was started by uh, Dr. Robert Ballard, the guy who discovered the Titanic and discovered hydrothermal oh, cool. vents and everything. And so they have an annual um, science communication fellows program where they uh, choose uh, a few science communication people um, to go aboard their ship, which is the exploration vessel Nautilus. Um, and it's a really cool program to apply for. I think they open up applications every winter time-ish. Um, and so for, for me, I'll be going on a three-week expedition, um, or I will have gotten back by the time you've heard this, <laughs> yeah. um, on a three-week expedition to uh, an underwater volcano um, that is similar to uh, Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, uh, because Enceladus is thought to have hydrothermal activity underneath its ice and, and a little ocean underneath there. And so it's really an expedition about searching for signs of uh, extreme forms of life that could tell us about how we might find life elsewhere in the solar system. So it's pretty exciting. And yeah, it, it's a really awesome program with Ocean Exploration Trust. And for me, I was personally excited because in addition to being a space geek, I've you know also been a, a deep sea uh, ocean geek, um, but I never really found a lot of opportunities to get involved on that side of things. So this is sort of my first um, my first push in that direction. That's so cool. And are you going along with other working scientists who are actually going to be doing research on board? No, it's just me controlling the whole ship. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, it'll have like a crew of like around 40 people or something of that nature. So yeah, there's going to be crew, there's going to be um, ROV pilots, uh, there's going to be many researchers, microbiologists, geobiologists, um, you know, people who specialize in hydrothermal vents, people who specialize in astrobiology, um, and uh, I'll be trying to do some microscopy on board. So looking at whatever microbes we can see from the samples that we uh, pull up. And um, and the whole thing, the thing that's really cool about it um, is that it's live streamed 24-7. Oh. Um, so between uh, now and November, I think, uh, is uh, when they live stream everything. So you can go to nautiluslive.org 
And you can just tune into what the uh, underwater ROVs are looking at at any point and hear people's people aboard the ship, their commentary and what scientists are saying about what they're seeing in real time. What are ROVs? Yes, uh, they are remotely operated vehicles. So underwater ROVs are, they're just underwater robots, really. Yeah. Uh, so just uh, things that are swimming around that are able to pick up samples and they have cameras aboard. So um, the uh, the ROVs on Nautilus, I think, can go down to, I think, 4,000 meters, which is uh, decently, decently deep. Mm. Um Beyond 4,000 meters, I've been told you need to build like a very, very large robot uh, to be able to deal with the pressure. So, um, so, but with 4,000 meters, we're going to be able to explore this um, underwater volcano that's off the coast of Hawaii um, in, in pretty close detail. So uh, it's exciting. And, and are you going to be underwater the entire time or do you surface? Do, like, I don't, I don't even know how long can submarines stay underwater? So, so these, um, these robots don't carry humans. So all the humans are going to be staying on board the ship. Um, oh, and the and, ship is a, a, it's a boat. It's not a submarine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's a 64 meter research vessel, so to speak. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's got these two little underwater robots. And so they go under and, uh, for our expedition, supposedly they're going to be under nearly the whole time. Um, so they're just going to be staying under there quite a bit. Um, they do get brought up for servicing and for sample collection. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're going to be under there quite, quite a lot. And what's the ship like? Have you seen pictures of it? Do you know what, like how comfortable are you going to be for the next three weeks? I am, I am expecting both like comfortable, but not comfortable, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, so I've, I've seen pictures. I haven't been aboard myself I, yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, I will be bunking. I might be in a bunk room with like three other roommates. And in that room, there's pretty much room for like these little bunks and like one dresser and that's it. So I've been told to bring collapsible luggage because there's not even a oh, place wow. to put a suitcase. Like, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone works in shifts and so I'll be working, you know, four hours on eight hours off. So what that means is, um, my shift is probably going to be like 8am to noon, uh, being on the live stream, moderating, talking between the scientists and everything. Um, and then also 8pm to midnight, uh, each day. And that's, um, every single day. So it's gonna, you know, I think that's gonna weekend. Or as I know, I don't get a weekend. Like I, I'd be, I'd be delighted if I got on board and they're like, "Oh, by the way, we forgot to tell you about weekends." But I don't. But no one has mentioned it in anything, and I've not seen it in any of the documentation. So as far as I know, it's three weeks uh, with no weekends whatsoever. And you're going to be on board the ship the entire time, no docking. Yes, correct. It, the the similarities to space travel are really remarkable, considering you know if. It, it seems so much like if you were to go to the space station where you're doing all of your work on board, you're there for a set amount of time, you can't leave, uh, and, <laughs> and you have, you know, these these robots that are out there doing the things that you can't do in those extreme environments. Uh, so is it, does it feel kind of like you're going to space? 
I mean, to me, that that's what excites me. Uh, you know, I get to keep gravity in an atmosphere, so that's good right. at least. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's like that, but I think there's also the aspect of, um, I think I'll probably be like role playing a bit in my mind of right. like imagining that we've just landed on Enceladus and that we're like, we're watching what like the probes are finding on Enceladus. Yeah. So, um, that's going to be exciting. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, um, I, yeah, I think it'll be interesting being on board for, for three weeks straight. Certainly, uh, there'll be a lot more, uh, I think room than the international space station. I mean, the, the ISS is pretty darn large, so maybe not like in length, but, um, but certainly, uh, in terms of, uh, well, I guess just being able to go out on a deck and have a sky above me and breathe air. Yeah. Uh, well, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear all about it when, uh, you're back and, uh, you're, going to be on Quizotron on Thursday, October 4th at Piano Fight in San Francisco. Uh, I want to hear all about all the weird stuff you find. I have you, can you do me a favor and specifically look for one of those furry lobsters? I, I remember <laughs> like many years ago, uh, scientists discovered a furry lobster that could survive right on a, uh, a sea vent, a deep sea vent. So huh. if, I'll send you a picture of it so you can look out for it. If you could get yeah, me I'll look those. out for it. Like I've been, to- I've been told that in the area that we're looking at, there's probably only going to be some microbial mats and maybe some shrimp feasting on those microbial right. mats because it is pretty uh, a pretty low oxygen area where we're going. But um, but I'll, I'll keep out for, uh, an eye out for furry lobsters for sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I would also take a shrimp if you could bring one of those back for me, but. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Just fry it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, wanted, I would like to taste. A, I, I wonder if it's harder to fry them because they live on a volcano, on an underwater volcano. No idea. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. Uh, Ariel, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I will see you on October 4th, where I expect you to bring your A game. Yep. Yep. And furry lobsters. Of course. Thanks, Ariel.